Hey everybody, welcome to the second episode of Generations Church Podcast. My name's John Grabhorn. I'm the engagement pastor here at Generations Church, and I'm sitting here with our lead pastor, Kyle Davies. We have, a little, we have a little change of scenery this week, no longer in your living room. Rather, we're in my living room, so it's kind of a little bit better for me, a little uh, more convenient of a drive and everything, but you know. Traffic was crazy. Yeah, yeah, it works out. It works good for me. So with this uh, whole podcast and what we're doing, we really just kind of want to take what we talk about on Sunday and really just begin to dive more into it, kind of hit it further than what we're able to on Sunday morning because we have such limited time. So this is going to be a great time for us to kind of ask some questions, dive a little bit deeper, hit some context, maybe a little some more understanding of some bigger churchy words sometimes we throw around. Yeah, We're, we're really trying to continue the conversation. And so we hope we, we just are able to give you a little bit of taste on Sunday, give you some real good practical application and we just continue that throughout the week because as we say at Generation Church often, we are everyday people and our faith has to be lived out every day where we live, work, and play. And so to do that well, we have to be constantly reorienting ourselves around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the, we have found one of the best ways to do that and to equip others to do that is really through this podcast and continue the conversation. And so we hope that it does exactly that. Yeah, this is super exciting because we just wrapped up our series on Hello, My Name is Church. We've been diving so through. So original there. I know. So I take all the naming right so, credits. It's on a little, little cheesy, but it's all right. We'll let you slide on that one. But we've been going through um, kind of this opening story of Acts and kind of looking at the beginning foundation of what the church looked like right after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and how the early church kind of began and got mm-hmm. formed. And so in the first week, we kind of talked about a little bit of dive into it, Kyle. Let's just go right into it. Yeah, yeah. So we looked at Acts chapter one and what it looked like to be witnesses uh, that weren't just doing things by our own strength and our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we see how that continues to develop because that Holy Spirit is, is the promise. And really in Acts chapter two, the apostles, they're the recipients of that promise. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is able to preach. And what we see is we see every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that is present there in Jerusalem hear the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in their own language. The people respond and give their life to Jesus. And what happens then is the apostles know that they have to teach these new followers of Jesus, these new people who are saying, okay, we agree with the message that you just said. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. So they begin to have to teach them and help them sh- their life be shaped. And so they devote themselves to four priorities, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, uh, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And so you have these four priorities, but what's amazing is you see these nine byproducts result from those four mm-hmm. priorities. And these nine byproducts begin to affect not just the life of the church, but begin to affect society at large. And what happens is as these believers root themselves in these priorities, the byproducts start to cause some friction with the society around them and specifically there in Jerusalem. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because you began to kind of give us the story of how we got to where we are in Acts 4 where you talked about this weekend. But you mentioned how... 
before we got there, we saw in Acts 1, the disciples just coming right out of Jesus and everything, and they're witnessing and they're sharing who Jesus is, and they're seeing in Acts 2, like great numbers of people coming and joining them, and you see these priorities lived out. And then in 3 and 4, we see kind of this shift of things aren't necessarily as good and peaceful and joyful for the church. Rather, <laughs> there's you said something along the lines of they scatter here. What's going on? Yeah, exactly. Is And you hear earlier on in this podcast, I mentioned that we as the church, we want to live out our faith where we live, work, and play. And so these early believers, they have lives too. And so they have to feed themselves. They have to uh, interact with the Jewish authorities who are still in charge. They have to interact uh, with the, the Romans who are still around. And what you begin to see is they are living out their faith day in and day out. And so what really begins to happen is those byproducts that we're seeing lived out the miracles, the signs and wonders that really point back that Jesus is who he said he was and his followers are, are seeing this incredible just supernatural work of God happen. Those Jewish leaders do not like it because it's attacking really the religious foundation or so, you know, so they, that's, that's how they feel that their whole structure of power is, is built on. Yeah. And so you see Peter and John in Acts 3 uh, go to the temple, something they would habitually do. And there they encounter a lame man. The signs and wonders, the miracle happens there where that lame man is healed. And then you have the, the Jewish leaders again going berserk because they want to know how this is possible and really by whose authority this comes from. And true to, to Peter, just as he's done in the past, he points it directly and says, it's by the authority in the name of Jesus. And what I love about Acts 4 is he, he calls them out and he says, you guys crucified him. You participated in actually the good news that, mm. that we're, we're sharing. And Actually, you are a cause of this lame man healing because Jesus dies, he's resurrected, and the Holy Spirit comes, seals these believers, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that they are able to see this lame man healed and testify to who Jesus was. Yeah, this is such a big moment, and it kind of leads up to one of my favorite verses and something that I've always come to and I just love is it comes to verse 11, where Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin. They're standing before the religious leaders, and, like, they're not in a good place right now. Like, they are no. being threatened of, like, being thrown in jail, being silenced, being persecuted in this moment. And what is the implication of this passage? In Acts 4.11, where Peter looks at them and it says, This Jesus, he is the stone that you builders rejected. He has now become the cornerstone. What is the implication of yeah. this passage of him saying this to these leaders? Well, he's attacking their foundation because they've they've built their structure of power, and what they've clung on to is is the way in which things are done is really rooted around their authority and their influence in society. Even the way the Sanhedrin is set up at this point, it's to intimidate Peter and John and this lame man. And so when Peter comes back around and cites Psalm 118, what he is doing is he's saying, yes, the promise of Abraham that, that really the Jewish faith is built on is fulfilled in Jesus. 
And he uses uh, that metaphor, that imagery of the cornerstone, because in ancient building practices, the cornerstone was the principal stone placed at the corner of the edifice. And it's going to be the largest, most solid, most carefully constructed of any in the building process. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Peter says this is Jesus means that the rest of the construct for the building, mm -hmm. the, what you're going to see visibly be built is all tied into how that cornerstone is placed. And so Peter is saying Jesus is this cornerstone and therefore everything that is to be built from here on out Everything that even was supposed to be built prior was supposed to be rooted in Jesus and the promise of this awaited Messiah. And again, Peter Peter says, hello, the Messiah is Jesus. And that's where mm -hmm. I said earlier is he, he calls him out on it and saying, yeah, you, you guys crucified the Messiah. And so he is your cornerstone. He is what your faith is built on. And he is the promised one that you, again, you can trace that promise really back into uh, the early chapters of Genesis, but they would have, they would have traced that back into the yeah. Abrahamic promise. Yeah. It's a, such a beautiful imagery. I think I've always loved this concept of the cornerstone. He tells them right here that the stone you rejected, the cornerstone that like we see in Jesus, you guys rejected it, but it is the cornerstone. It is the only way to salvation in what he says in verse 12. He says, this is the only way is to build your life on Jesus. Follow his example. Who he was and who he is, is the way yeah. to life. And, and this message is going gonna, is gonna to attack our foundations. Because anytime that we build our life on something other than Jesus, it has the potential to crumble and likely will, whether it's through suffering or circumstances or uh, just the sin and brokenness of the world. And so when Peter declares that Jesus is the cornerstone, he's giving us a place to have solid footing. So even though tough circumstances, suffering, things are far from ideal, um, or even, even good things that ultimately become uh, maybe God things or, or the highest priority, when it's not rooted on Jesus, it will ultimately collapse. And so because Jesus is the cornerstone and we build our life on him, we're always going to have solid and sure footing. We're going to have that that key foundational piece that it, we can build our life on. Yeah, I thought that was such a um, unique passage to use for us mm -hmm. in our shaping of understanding who we are as the church mm -hmm. as we begin this exploration, as we continue who we are as generations and for generations to come that we are built on Jesus. He is the cornerstone in which we build everything off of. Yeah, and right there in our vision, you can see it because of Jesus. We're not having this conversation <laughs> if it's not because of Jesus. Yeah. And so we want to make sure that's crystal clear while we want to see generations grow, while we want to see people uh, trust and follow Jesus, the ways in which we do things ultimately have to be rooted back in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to aspire to do that and do that well. Yeah. One of the other things you began kind of touching on in your sermon, and you kind of touched on it just a minute ago, is dealing with these other worldviews mm -hmm. in a sense of how we have these other uh, religions or worldviews in the world. And sometimes we get feedback in saying how Christianity can be exclusive. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you have to believe this one thing, otherwise you don't belong to it. It's really 
like you're pushing away a bunch of people. And you began to bring up a really cool point in your sermon that I, I kind of connected with, and I think other people did too in the room, in a sense that almost every religion, every ideology, every philosophy has this level of exclusiveness of exclusiveness to it in a sense that it says this is the truth you either accept this or you you're not a part like you don't believe in this and so to say christianity is the only thing that is exclusive is kind of a exclusive statement on itself yeah and so how do we relate how do we deal with these other worldviews that have this exclusiveness to it well and and to break that word down a little bit all that we're saying is there, there are boundaries at some point in a belief system you have to have some lines. And so whether they're on specific issues or as we would use in the church world, the word, the word doctrines, uh, but when you're interacting with other worldviews, is there are, there are lines that are going to differentiate, which that makes these other worldviews and even Christianity a measure of, of being exclusive. So, so there are boundaries and there are just just dividing lines. And what, what you see is as every worldview asks a series of questions. They have to. Even people who profess uh, that they don't believe that there is God, uh, that, uh, that, that maybe would even go, ah, I don't care to figure it out. I really don't know if there's anything out there. Uh, I'm just going to live my life. They're still operating and making choices based on some type of system of beliefs. And so every operating system, and that's simply what a worldview is, it's an operating system. It's the way we make choices. It's the way we determine right or wrong. It's uh, good and evil. It's really the summation of, again, these five questions. What kind of God exists, if any? What is the origin and nature of the universe? How can we know what we know? What is the nature and destiny of man? What is the difference between right and wrong? And these questions are ultimate because the answers are, that are given to them make all the difference in a person's life. And they're really unavoidable because everyone thinks, feels, acts on the basis of deeply held motives and grounds. So in other words, we do what we believe and no less than we do what we are. And so everyone <laughs> is living out of some worldview, whether we like it or not. And whether we think we have a, a consistent system of beliefs, and many of us, there, there's a level of inconsistency at times, and we, we have to be able to acknowledge that. And so worldviews are made up uh, by the summation of what a person thinks of these five questions. So major world religions, uh, even the Western nicety religion that we have mm -hmm. today has answers to those five questions. Yeah, that's awesome. And one of the things that we kind of, you kind of touched on a little bit this weekend is this kind of idea of this absolute truth, this understanding that, yes, there are other worldviews, there are other ideologies, but here in this passage, we see and we hear from you that Jesus is the only way to mm. salvation. We hear this word throw around, this idea of absolute truth. Like, how do we uh, reconcile this understanding and of all these other people claiming, oh, these are truth, this has truth to it, you know, these other religions of uh, Islam, Buddhism, all that we have to listen to all this stuff in our world because it's very apparent. And how do we interact with some of those and relate our understanding that here clearly, clearly we are told that Jesus is the only way to salvation? 
I think our posture is really important as we as we do this. Is you, you see Peter in this interaction, and though he responds with Jesus is the way, and there there is that absolute truth in that, is he's discerning where their question comes from. He's he's listening to what they're asking. And so the best posture is as we interact with other people is not one really of arrogance, but it's one of humility and it's one of listen first. Mm. Uh, And our responses to that come out of what we're actually hearing and asking good questions so that we can see where the person is coming from. So not listening to respond, but listening to to understand. So, so if, if we've got that part down, we're going to listen well, we're going to come forward with humility. What we have to be able to, to do as we interact with other worldviews is see how they answer those five questions that uh, I gave a minute ago mm. and, and listen for those answers and see if they identify something as broken or something that they hopeful for. And, and again, ask and figure out how, what are the solutions what what would they what would they put forward, and how this ties in specifically with that absolute truth component is they are going to make a judgment. They are going to say this is where it, where it comes from. The challenge is is specifically in in the in the West. What we see and what we hear often is that truth is a social construct. And it's and it and it's and it's it's originated out of the society in which you're in. But what that does is that pushes forward a level of meaninglessness. Mm. What that does is it pushes forward a, a level of self as the source. But the, but the challenge is if if we constantly have negative consequences or we're constantly breaking things or, or things aren't working out, most of us experientially would go like, hey. I'm not a good and trusted source <laughs> of 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 truth and we see that because if you if you look that up if we were the trusted source of truth then every time we would do an action uh, have an attitude it would it would al- it would always be right yeah. and so what Peter puts forward and what he posits is that we need something outside of us to determine what that truth is and so the Christian worldview puts forward is that a transcendent, infinite, eternal God stepped into time, into humanity to show us what being truly human looks like, to give us, uh, again, what truth actually is and what that looks like to be human. And so here's, here's the way I'd explain it. As we, 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 we go to school for a reason. You, you probably went to high school for, for a reason. And it, the, the reason you had to go is because you had to learn something. There was something that you didn't know just simply by knowing internally. Someone had to posit some information, what we would determine as facts, into our lives. And so we had to rely on an outside source. The challenge is... is we, we say, yes, that's right and good for most of our experience, except when it comes to the spiritual truths, except for when it comes to, say, a religion like, uh, and a worldview like Christianity, as we say, well, no, it can't be that way. But 
it's essentially self-refuting mm-hmm. and what what eventually results in is statements are made and if an absolute truth is put forward then it's like i said it, it's self-refuting because any statement that you'd make is this is the way it is would be posited as an absolute truth would therefore prove that absolute truth <laughs> exists yeah. and so we have to recognize in the West that we just have a natural disposition to self-reliance and our, the, our own framework in which we, we view the world and make choices. And the Christian worldview pushes forward as saying, no, no, you're not, you're not wise enough. You're, you're not self-sufficient on your own. You need something to bring rescue and bring change. And that's where we see both in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately in the promise of the Holy Spirit to enact that change and bring that, the love, joy, peace, uh, and hope that we so desperately Mm. want experientially each and every day. Yeah. I mean, we see people time and time, like, I mean, let's just go right back to the passage in which we see Peter and John give this absolute truth right in the midst of the St. Adrian, right in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this suffering, which is really interesting to see them do this because so often we, um, we kind of expect with Christianity when we begin practicing this stuff, we begin following Jesus. Sometimes if we can get these preconceived notions that we're kind of deserving of the byproducts. We're deserving mm. of the peace, the grace, the happiness, the love, joy, peace that we see in other Christians. And sometimes we don't always get that. You know, we don't get that immediate satisfaction. Sometimes we begin following Jesus. We begin reading our Bible, praying, going to uh, Sunday gatherings, maybe helping out an event or something. And sometimes we don't see the immediate results. And we have to live in this time where it's like, I'm trying to follow Jesus and I'm trying to live this life where I hear of this peace. I hear of this joy and I see this in other Christians. Why am I not experiencing Mm. this myself? What would you say to people in those moments when they don't see that immediate result, when they don't begin to feel that happiness, they're stepping in line with Jesus, they take that next step, and they don't feel the byproducts in which we talk about? Yeah. The, the Bible uses a great metaphor. He describes, the, the Bible describes, and specifically in Galatians, as some of this, this love, this joy, this, these what we want, the, the feel-goody, you know, the, the warm and fuzzies likens these to internal dispositions really likens it to to choices or fruit and so meaning it takes time for things to grow and many times these things have to grow in the right soil and so some of the difficulty that we're not experiencing these right away is because we've we've got to prepare our hearts and our lives so that these things can grow within. There, there has to be a means of, of maybe pruning, to use another uh, gardening analogy. But further, we're used to getting what we want when we want it. Uh, experientially, we see this all the time. DoorDash, Amazon Prime, <laughs> is, is we're just used. I see something, I want it, I can get it, it's there, it's immediacy. So contrast that with the metaphor of fruit. It takes mm. time for something to grow. If you stick a seed in the ground, if you come back in 20 minutes, there's not going to be a sprout in, a, in an apple tree or, you know, just even a full-fledged apple tree there with fruit. Yeah. Is it's going to take some time and some seasons for that tree to grow. And so 
at a soul level, we mix, sometimes we, we mix this love, joy, peace, and patience up with our pursuit of happiness. Uh, we lump uh, many of these in with, I just want to be happy. And so just to say it another way is we really want that convenience and ease. And so we think that if, if okay, if I just do the right thing, it'll produce, you know, the, the right result. And it's really because we, we want that convenience and ease. Uh, but, you know, what's fascinating is, is as we try to pursue happiness, and again, we do some of these things because we think we want those. And like I said, we, we lump this in with happiness and that, that pursuit of happiness is that there's actually the, this study that uh, came out in 2010 by, by Duke University. And what, what this study talks about is how people uh, ultimately were happy. And let me, let me just read some of the things that they say is people found, uh, this study concluded that happiness is fostered really by eight factors. Avoiding suspicion and resentment, nursing a grudge was a major factor in unhappiness, not living in the past, an unwholesome preoccupation with old mistakes and failures leads to depression, uh, not wasting time and energy fighting conditions that can't be changed, People are happier when they cooperate with life instead of trying to run from it. Uh, four, staying involved uh, with the living world. Happiness increases when people resist the temptation to become reclusive during periods of emotional stress. Uh, five, refusing to indulge in self-pity when handed a raw deal. It's easier for people to achieve happiness when they accept the fact that nobody gets through life without some sort of sorrow and misfortune. Uh, six, cultivating old-fashioned virtues that love, humor, compassion, and loyalty. And, and notice the word choice on this one. They say cultivating, which means a level of work mm-hmm. and time. And so, again, go, go back to that initial question you asked is, is, why don't we experience this way? Time has to pass. If you go back to some of these initial five that, that I just read off and rattled off, there's a willing choice to f- forego temporary pleasure for the sake of long-term gain. Mm. And so when people begin to follow Jesus and they're saying, okay, Kyle, I'm doing these priorities. You know, I'm devoting myself. Why aren't I experiencing these things? It's sometimes just frankly, not enough time has passed. Not enough seasons have, have gone through because if you look back, you know, maybe five, 10 years later, what you'll see is you, you will see change, but we like to be so up close. We like to be so laser because we like that immediate immediacy, we often miss the actual change that's, that's taking place. And so just, just the last couple, uh, seven, not expecting too much of oneself where there, um, when there is too wide a gap, uh, between virtue and knowledge and knowledge with self control and self control with steadfastness. Um, and just, you, you see a gap gap there. there, there's between self expectation and the person's ability to meet the goals that he or she has, um, and so, and finding something bigger to believe in, self-centered, egotistical people score the lowest in any test measuring happiness. And so what I began to read a second ago was actually how all of these pursuits of what we see as the happiness quotient, uh, which a lot of us, that's, that's what our world pushes, is actually are rooted in, in scripture. And it, but it takes a willful choice. It takes time. And so, so how do, how do we do that? How do we cope with that? 
is we have to have other believers that encourage us, stay patient, that say keep working, keep going, and allow the Holy Spirit to do what He does best, which bring, is bringing about the change that you so uh, desire. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there's <laughs> definitely some immediate change uh, that happens uh, in, in our life uh, that, w- that we will begin to see right away. But I think for most, these virtues, this character change really takes time. Yeah. I think one of the cool things and how this just, it feels like it comes full circle. Because I remember our, um, the first part of this sermon series in which you left us with this challenge of what does it look like for you to ask yourself during the week, where is God at work? Mm-hmm. And sometimes during our seasons and during our times of life where we feel like we're dry, we're not experiencing this happiness. We're not experiencing the joy, the peace, the patience. Like life just doesn't seem to be going well. And I'm in the midst of pursuing Jesus, but things aren't going right around me. And yet we're able to go back to those times in our life where we've asked ourselves, where has God been at work? And we can go and remind ourselves that God is always at work throughout our life. We're able to remind ourselves that, yes, I might just be going through a time right now that is rough. I'm following Jesus with everything I have, but I'm just, I don't feel like I'm getting the byproducts, but we're able to kind of pause and look back and say, yes, God has been at work in the transformation and the work that he's been doing over this time far outweighs what I'm dealing with now. Yeah. Noticing where God is at work really is a step back in an expectation uh, of, or let me frame it up this way, is really a supernaturalist worldview in contrast to that naturalist worldview where A plus B equals C. Mm. And when you begin to notice where God is at work in, in unexpected ways and you, and you lift your head up sometimes away from your phone and you begin <laughs> to look into the lives around you, of the people around you, and you begin to have conversation with them and you begin to listen well, and you begin to to experience something because we're designed for relationship and you expect God to show up, you start to see where he's at work. And even in just the little things of your kid gets ready for, for school without complaining, or you're able to actually get a full night's sleep, or you had enough money in your bank account to, to fill up your gas uh, in your car so that you could get to work on time. And so just little things like that. And that really takes, it actually takes a level of discipline to not look at your phone and go, why aren't I experiencing all the highlights? Like it seems like everybody else and actually look out into the, into the real world, into the lives of people around you and noticing, man, I see God potentially doing something there and looking at it. And so it's, it's a supernatural, uh, worldview in contrast to more of a naturalistic worldview. Uh, and just, just to clarify that, when I use that word naturalistic worldview, um, it's a worldview that embraces randomness and ultimate meaninglessness. And survival of the fittest doesn't lend itself to happiness. Just, just to point that out. And so in week two, we talked about people wanting the byproducts without the priorities. Uh, too often, People can borrow certain values from a Christian worldview, but without faith in Christ and the indwelling spirit as an agent of change, um, they're left without a solid foundation, uh, really for happiness. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. 
and because we were able to take this whole idea and this construct of what Peter and John are doing here in Acts 4, really begin to tie it back around to one of our to one of our values in this idea of story over sin, mm-hmm. how we're able to take this big construct of from what we talked about in Acts 1 of what it looks like to be able to take who Jesus is, to be bold and take this stand and witness and share with other people who Jesus is. We're able to focus ourselves around the four priorities and be able to recognize that Jesus is the only way. And so this weekend, you kind of left us with this challenge. You left us with this construct of how to live in the midst of this moment, follow what Peter and John are trying to hit at here when they're standing before the Sanhedrin. They say Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the only way in which where we begin to kind of circle back around to what it looks like for us to follow and how really you just called us and you gave us the challenge of what it looks like for us to go to someone who might not be connected with the church, someone we interact with in our own lives, to connect with them, meet with them over coffee, meet them at the bar, restaurant, wherever we interact with people, to sit down and just honestly and authentically listen to their story before we speak, listen, hear their story, see where they are, and then be willing to share the change in which Jesus has done in our life, how God has been at work in transforming our life, how the transformational work of the Holy Spirit alive in us, us placing Jesus as the cornerstone, the only way to salvation in our own life, and how that has changed us, the change that we have in our story, and how that can relate to them. It's, a, it's really identifying that we have a new identity because of Jesus, and listening in conversation for where people are finding their strength and their source of of just rescue and change. And you can very honestly ask them, how is that going for you? And some people at this season in their life, it may be going well, but given enough time, given enough conversation, and if you're following Jesus well, as they observe your life, what they will notice is your foundation, the reason that you do what you do is built on something entirely different than the reason or motivation that they may have for doing what they do. And so let me give you four quick things just to listen for to be extremely practical in these conversations. Listen to where or how their stories begin or how things used to be. You'll maybe hear a level of brokenness there. Listen for what is now broken and not the way uh, it used to be or how the person wants it. Uh, Listen for what they think will ultimately fix their situation and listen for what they are ultimately thinking life or this situation will be like when all is well. And this will come out in a level of complaining, irritation, um, or even positive hope that something good is coming. And their motivation, their their reasoning, their, their rationale may come from something that can be taken away something that can change. And the beautiful thing about Christianity, the beautiful thing about the worldview that we have as followers of Jesus is that Jesus is the cornerstone. And because of his life, death, and resurrection, we have a faith and a hope and a promise that cannot be taken away, no matter the circumstance or situation. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Please subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to share this podcast and our 
other social media with your family and friends. This will be a great way to hear our weekly teaching and additional conversations we're having around Generations Church. Thanks for joining us.